You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. We are living in the midst of a pandemic. Now, I don't mean COVID-19, though that pandemic certainly made this other one worse. We have been living in the midst of this pandemic for far, far longer than that. This one isn't a new thing. In fact, it's been going on for millennia, but in the last couple of decades, it has been exploding. The the high-speed spread of this condition used to seem confined to the Western world, but now we have imported it all over the place. It's so bad that at this point, we in fact might be more surprised to hear that someone doesn't suffer with it than that they do, which perhaps causes all of us to just neglect the symptoms of this disease in our own lives. And it just wears at us slowly. I'm talking about the pandemic of anxiety. And it seems that for many, what really makes us anxious is talking about anxiety. And so what we do is we choose to just sort of stuff all of that down and keep it to ourselves, choosing to handle it through all of the hours that we now have lying awake at night because we can't sleep. The problem with anxiety is that there really is an endless supply of things to be anxious about. Whether you're looking for them or not, you can definitely find them. One writer points out that anxiety expresses the mind state of multitudes in the modern world. And then he muses that many of these troubled folk live within Western society, which is in the most respects sheltered from the starker deprivations, such as chronic lack of food, shelter, and healthcare, which plague the millions in the third world. And then he notes that plenty does not equate with peace of mind. So what do you do with your anxiety? Well, many have offered meditation as the help that we might find Go to meditation, find peace in your life, but then people counter, maybe you've countered this way yourself, but here's the thing, I'm not good at meditation. Meditation is hard for me. Every time I close my eyes, the images are there, and every time I step into silence, the sounds of my worries are screaming in my mind. But perhaps... The problem isn't that we are bad at meditation, but that we are too good at it. Here's what I mean. Let me offer this definition of anxiety. Anxiety is meditation. Merriam-Webster defines meditation as focusing one's thoughts on, reflecting on, or pondering over, and then it offers such synonyms as to consider, to deliberate, to mull over, to ruminate, to wrestle with, to pour over. Well, when I am anxious, that is exactly what I am doing. 
I am considering every angle of the issue that I am facing. I'm deliberating on what I should do next. I am mulling over all of my options. I am ruminating on how the other person is going to respond, wrestling with my feelings about that response and pouring over every possible outcome. Anxiety is meditation, and actually, we're really, really good at meditating. The problem is that we meditate on all the wrong things. Isn't that we're bad at the practice of meditating? The issue is with the substance of meditation. This is why scripture in, in Philippians 4, right after telling us to not be anxious about anything says this, it says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything that is excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about, or we might say, meditate on these things. That's why we're told in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, to set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. Meditate on the things of God. Consider the the love of God. Deliberate on the grace of God. Mull over the, the character of God. Ruminate on the mercies of God. Wrestle with the high call of God and pour over the promises of God. The problem is not that we are bad at meditating. It's just that we meditate on all the wrong things. And in our passage this morning, we are going to find the disciples of Jesus at a moment of great anxiety. Now, if you've been with us, you know we're working through the book of of John, and you may remember that last week we were in John 11, and in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And you might think, well, what's there to be anxious about if he's raising people from the dead? That seems like like a positive situation here. Well, we are jumping ahead. We're jumping to John chapter 14 today, and it's all the stuff in the middle that has caused their anxiety, caused their hearts to be troubled. Multiple times in chapters 12 and 13, Jesus has told them that he's leaving. And as Bruce Milne points out, their whole world had been wrapped up with Jesus over the last few years that the prospect of his departure was devastating. Jesus had asked them to invest their whole future into following him. And they had made that commitment, the commitment that he demanded, they agreed to, and now he's leaving? But not only that, he says, he doesn't just say he's leaving, he says that he's gonna die. He told them that one of them was a traitor, He told Peter, who seemed like kind of a leader among these disciples, that he was going to deny him three times. And if we consider the other books, the other gospels, he also tells them that Satan is coming after them. He's going to sift them like wheat. He tells them that they're all going to fall away. All that to say they had plenty of things to be anxious about, plenty of things to meditate on. And the work of of Jesus that we're going to see in our passage is not to address all of those individual concerns that they have, but rather to turn their attention back to himself. 
to focus them on the reality of heaven, to focus them on the way to heaven and to focus them on the power that they are receiving even now as they wait for heaven. And so let's look together at this passage. You may have heard it before, John 14. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there to John 14. And, and if you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find that, that passage on 998. And please, we're going to remind you that if you need a Bible, take one of those. They're there for you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word, so feel free to take it home with you. All right, so they are anxious, and Jesus is speaking to them. John 14, we're going to start in verse 1. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Their hearts were troubled. They were anxious. And Jesus' response is to turn their focus, to focus them on God, the reality that they are going to the Father, following the Son, filled with the Spirit, right? To focus them on heaven, the reality of heaven, the, the way to heaven, the power that they have even now as they wait for heaven. Look how he starts. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in in me. It's as if he could hear their hearts crying out, you're going to leave us? You're going you're gonna to die? What are we going to do? We're going to do what? And he says, I know it's a lot to take in. I know there's a lot there, but just trust me. 
believe in God. Believe in me. I know you're anxious. I know it's overwhelming, but trust me. That's what we need to hear a lot of the time. And it's what God says to us, really. No matter our situation, he says, I know it's overwhelming, but trust me. I got you. And then he lays out for them here. He, really, he lays out for us here these great truths to confirm that it's actually gonna be all right. And so as we think about this passage in our, in our own lives, perhaps we would be helped by thinking about three questions. What is heaven? How do I get to heaven? And what do I do while I wait for heaven? And in like manner, right, when anxiety comes our way, we might be helped to meditate on the answers to those questions, the truths that we're going to see today, that we do know where we're going and we do know how to get there and we do know the power. So what is heaven? We'll look at verses two and three. Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I don't know if you've ever watched the television show, The Good Place, but it does an incredible job of, of making us ask some big questions big questions about what we believe, big questions about eternity, and it exposes some of the things that culture and even Christians have gotten really, really wrong about what happens after we die. In the very first episode, Eleanor arrives in the good place, and she's given a tour of the community. And when they come to her house, her mansion, it's explained to her that in the good place, Everyone gets to live in a house that perfectly matches their personality and tastes. And I think that's how a lot of us think about heaven. I think a lot of us think that what's going to happen is that I'm going to finally get my mansion. It's coming. But really, we should note from the beginning that that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not what he's telling us. Heaven isn't about you finally getting all of the material things that you didn't get on earth, that you really wish you had. One day it's coming. I'm going to get to heaven. God's going to give me all the stuff that I want. That's not what it's about. Heaven is about living in the presence and the glory of God. D.A. Carson says that the point of the many rooms mentioned here is not the lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that such ample provision has been made, that there's more than enough space for everyone. Every one of Jesus's disciples can join him in his father's home. The point is that there's room for you. There's room for you. Now, for some of us, that may make you less excited about heaven, right? Some of us are thinking about heaven through earthly eyes and all the stuff that we're gonna have in heaven. So I'm here to tell you that if you're looking for stuff in heaven, you are gonna be sorely disappointed in eternity. Not because you won't have stuff, but because all that stuff that lets you down here on earth, it's gonna let you down there. 
stuff will never satisfy. So it's not going to work. The promise of heaven isn't infinite wealth. It's a relationship with an infinite God. And and the pleasures that we enjoy on earth and the pleasures that we will enjoy in eternity are all gifts from a gracious and loving God that are meant to drive us deeper into our love and relationship with him. But they'll never satisfy on their own. So, So what is heaven? Well, heaven is the presence of God. Heaven is the Father's house with Jesus. As the old hymn says, where Jesus is, tis heaven, tis heaven. Heaven is being finally and fully in right relationship with God and living and living in that, that state of peace and, and love and, and joy and abundance for all eternity. Our eternity isn't some strange, ethereal state. It's actually a very earthly state, but filled with the fullness of the presence of God. And you may have all sorts of questions about what all of that means, but I would just remind you of what one of my favorite commentators says. William Barclay encourages us that we don't need to speculate on what heaven will be like. It is enough to know that we will be forever with Jesus. So Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going away, but I'm coming again, and we're going to be together forever. And in this way, our excitement over heaven is directly related to our excitement over Jesus. So perhaps over time, we've added to our, our visions of the glory of heaven, but that's partly because we're just not all that excited about Jesus. Pastor Matt Carter says, the less we think of Jesus here on earth, the less excited we'll be for heaven. If we think of Jesus as some boring, dull, cosmic killjoy, or if we view him as someone to just be tolerated, then we will have no appetite for heaven. Why would I want to be with that all the time? It's no wonder. It's no wonder some of us don't want to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. We don't want to take time to spend with him now. Why would we want that forever? We don't want to take the time to discover the inexhaustible, delightful, and satisfying magnificence of our Savior. Heaven's heaven's not great because there's no sickness or death or pain. It's great because Jesus is there. It's not great because the streets are made out of gold or because every tear is going to be wiped away. All those things are true. But heaven is great because Jesus is there. And if that's what heaven is, and if we still want it, then the logical next question would be, how do I get there? In fact, that's the question the disciples ask in in that very moment, right? So look at verse five. Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? We can't even put it in our GPS. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said, have, have, you, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, the words that I say to you? I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He says, we're going to the Father's house by following the Son. The way is Jesus, there is in fact no other way to get in. Now, I remember when I was a kid, I went to this church and we had a pastor who loved to tell this story, so much so that I have it entirely memorized. He would tell a story about going to the post office one day and running into someone while he was there. And the person said to him, preacher, you came to the post office today down Main Street but I came down commerce, but we both ended up at the same place. Seems to me, it's the same thing when you die. You believe in Jesus and that's your way, but I'm going a different way. To which the pastor responded, well, when I die, I'm not going to the post office. Now it's a silly story, but it's also the case according to Jesus that he is the only way to the Father. He's the only way to the Father's house. He's the only way to heaven. And the disciples who in that moment don't really know what this is all about later, they get it. Here's what Peter says, speaking of Jesus in Acts 4 verse 12, he says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In in a sense, Christianity is exclusive. But in another sense, it's not exclusive at all. It's not exclusive in who it lets in. It's exclusive in how you get in. Right? In fact, Scripture is very clear. Anybody can come. Anybody can come, right? We talked about that several weeks ago. We were looking at that famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever, it isn't exclusive in who gets in, but how one gets in. There's only one way, Jesus. Jesus alone is the way to the Father, But Jesus isn't the way like like a road. He's the way like like a driver. He doesn't just say, oh, go that way. He says, come with me. Come with me. To quote Matt Carter again, just as heaven is about living with Jesus, salvation is about walking with Jesus. Jesus does not say he will point them in the right direction. He says, I am both the destination and the driver. Or perhaps more eloquently again, William Barclay, Jesus does not give us advice and directions. He takes us by the hand and leads us. And he strengthens us and he guides us personally every day. He does not tell us about the way. He is the way. We go to the Father following the Son while living in the Spirit. Heaven's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be incredible. 
being in the fullness of the presence of God for all eternity is, is something that we can, we can only imagine, we can only look forward to. But what about now? I'm sure you've heard the saying that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I'm not sure that's actually possible because if you actually fill your mind with the actuality of what heaven actually is, then you will actually do a lot of good here on earth. So while I'm not sure it's actually possible, I do think that it is important that we consider how do I live now? How do I live in, in the present as I wait? What do I do until heaven? Well, Jesus moves to that question next. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. What do we do until heaven? Will we live in the power of God, following the spirit of God, advancing the kingdom of God? Jesus says, you're gonna do even greater works than I've done. Now, of course, if we consider the quality of the works that Jesus did, that is to say what he did, I mean, he fed thousands, right? And he healed the sick and the lame and the blind. He even, he even raised the dead. And then, and then to top it all off, he took the sins of the world on himself and died on the cross, paying the penalty in full. And then he raises himself back up from the dead. It seems kind of impossible to do greater things than him. So what does he mean? Well, well on, the one, on the one hand, what he means is that his followers will do far greater things in the expanse or the, the quantity of the work that he did. He says, you're going to do what I did, but greater. Well, think about Jesus's ministry. It lasted about three years. It was all confined one place, to Palestine. When you think about the followers of Jesus, they've been doing his work now for millennia, all over the world, not just for Jews, but for every ethnic group possible. The gospel is going for, it is a greater thing. We're doing more than he did. He's talking about the expanse of the kingdom work that's being done. But think about this too. Jesus' most notable work is that he takes our sins and he dies on the cross for us. He resurrects with victory. And the greatest work that we get to do is we get to tell other people about that incredible good news. Jesus did it. And we get to see people moved from death to life. We get to see people be saved, 
Truly the greatest work that can be done is the work of salvation in the hearts of people. But, but I would remind us as well that this doesn't mean that Jesus has stopped working. In fact, again, Pastor Matt Carter says that when we try to compare the works of Jesus with the works of the disciples, we have created a false dichotomy. The distinction is between what Jesus did here on earth and what Jesus is accomplishing from heaven through his people now on earth. Jesus is still the one working in the power of the spirit in and through each of us. All the work is the work of God. All the work is the work of Jesus. As we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ does his work through us. And we pray in his name. And he says, I will say yes, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Specifically, we need to understand he's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about this greater work. When I begin to pray that people would be converted, when I begin to pray that people's lives would be changed, when I begin to pray that God would bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and put them in the kingdom of Jesus, he will answer. When I pray that he will give me a Ferrari, He probably won't, unless somehow me owning that is going to bring more people into the kingdom of God. Whatever I ask in his name, for the sake of his kingdom, that his name would be lifted high, that his name would be praised. He says, I will give it to you. What do we do until heaven? We continue the work of Jesus. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we share the incredible news that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, that he died for our sins, that he rose again from the grave, and that he offers that, that forgiveness now to anyone who would repent and believe in him. Forgiveness, reconciliation with God, hope in heaven to all who would come in faith to him. But it's not just about heaven one day, but about his presence with us this day, every day. He tells us here that the Father will send the Spirit to be ever with us. And look what it says about the Spirit. It says the Spirit is another helper. That is to say that the Spirit fulfills the same sort of role that Jesus fulfilled in the life of the disciples. So if you've ever thought to yourself, you know what, I just wish that Jesus was here. If I had Jesus as my helper, then I would believe, then I would follow, then I would do the things that he asked me to do. The Spirit is the other helper. The Spirit does the same work that Jesus did. He just does it now and in all of you, in all of us. We're filled up with the Spirit. You're never far from God. You're never far from God because the Spirit dwells with you always, empowering you to do the work of God, to advance the kingdom of God. We need not be anxious because we're going to the Father, following the Son, filled with the Spirit. So are you anxious? Are you anxious today? Do you feel 
overwhelmed by, by the troubles of this world? Friend, fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider, what am I meditating on? Is it the things of this world? Or, or have I set my mind on the things that are above? Focus your attention on the reality of heaven, the way to heaven, the power that you have even now as you wait for heaven. We're going to the Father, following the Son and filled up by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful that we have this sort of hope that we don't have to live anxious lives. We don't have to have our hearts troubled. And you tell us in your word that when we feel anxiety, that we cast it on you. And so, Lord, we, we're, not, we're not apologizing for feeling anxious sometimes, but, Lord, we ask that you would help us to cast it on you to look to you, to trust in you, and to follow after you all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen.